This is a Federal News Network podcast. Back in 2019, the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council strategy acknowledged the need to have a centralized body to unify federal supply chain risk management. Two years later, the FASC still is not there. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why there is still seemingly an ad hoc approach by agencies to protect supply chains. Jason joins me now with more. Jason, I was surprised to discover in your reporting six agencies have very similar supply chain efforts going on. You would think it would just be the Pentagon and, say, GSA. It's amazing when you look at the SAM.gov and just do a little bit of research. You put a little bit of a a word in there like supply chain risk management and see what comes up. And, And there's just been a lot of efforts around government for quite a while, Tom. But just recently, since November, you're right, six agencies, GSA, the Army Contracting Command, the Homeland Security Department, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the Social Security Administration, and, and just coming today, Tuesday, is NIST with another RFI talking about, well, what if we update the cybersecurity framework and how would supply chain risk management fit into that? And, you know, Tom, just back in August, what NIST did was they launched this new, if you will, effort called the National Initiative for Improving Cybersecurity and Supply Chains. And they're asking questions about, okay, well, how does that initiative fit in with the cybersecurity framework? So there's all these things that are happening at once. And it's just come, it kind of occurred to me, hey, this is great, right? It's a great recognition that, that agencies understand that they have to do better to, to secure their supply chain, specifically around cybersecurity, but it's broader than that in, in many cases. At the same time, well, if, if, Tom, you're going left and I'm going right and someone else is going down the middle, are we ever going to converge or are we all going to do these kind of ad hoc and, and are we really going to get to the end result, which is better secured supply chain? Yeah, it can be at times the government seems like several parallel universes all operating at once. But are these all focused on cybersecurity of the supply chain or do they look at also supply chain issues besides cyber that could disrupt supply chains? Several are focused on cybersecurity. GSA, for instance, and they have an RFI that's still available for people to comment on. Comments are due February 28th, so another another week or so. And what their, R, their RFI really looks at is, is directly related to the Federal Acquisition Security Council's efforts. And they're saying, listen, we know that there is a lot going on in the what they call the ICT, information and communications technology world. And so what would be some of the ways to do a better job of establishing the, the level of supply chain security measures for vendors who provide products and services through the GSA marketplace? So you're talking about schedules and multiple work contracts and government-wide acquisition contracts. They're asking for best practices, how to categorize hardware and software products. What evidence should vendors provide to validate they're meeting these cyber supply chain risk management standards. So I think that there's a lot going on from GSA. Another one from CMS, they're looking at something totally different, Tom. They're asking for help from a vendor to provide data, to provide information, to provide really, uh, if you will, what is currently out there to help us make better decisions as it relates to our major procurements. Again, so so very similar to what GSA, but not the same, but it all comes back down to this idea of data. And then finally, Tom, the Social Security Administration issued an RFI back a, a few months ago. And again, they're looking for a third-party expertise for electronic supply chain counterfeit reporting avoidance, or, or ERAI, which is an acronym I just learned, and how they can apply that kind of data and predictive analytics to some of their major procurements. So all very similar, but none the same. But 
Tom, it just occurs to me, don't you think they could benefit from each other? Did CMS know GSA was doing this? Did SSA know CMS was doing this? And and that's why I kind of brought up where is the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council? Sure. How are they involved in this? Yes, you would think even within HHS, NIH and CMS and some of the other big components have similar supply chain questions. You know, if you're talking about the contamination of drugs and other supplies like that, that's different from the cyber question, but it's still a supply chain question. So, yeah, I have a feeling maybe Congress could come in at some point and maybe harmonize all of this, which they have done for DOD. You're reporting about the eight provisions in the still fresh National Defense Authorization Act. It is like the uh, the gift that keeps giving to us, right? The, every time you think about a story, you go back to the NDA and look, there's something in it. There's about something this, <laughs> almost always. you're working on. And, and this isn't, you know, just to be nerd out on you for a second, Tom, subtitle E has eight provisions of the NDAA. A lot of them are much broader than just cybersecurity. However, Congress did identify that DOD needs to take advantage of data and analytics tools to reduce the risks to their supply chain. Now, those risks are not necessarily all cyber risks. They could be uh, production risks. They could be delivery risks. So, But it's just this idea of, okay, DOD, you need certain things. How do you make sure you can get them when you need them? And now to that end, DOD uh, has been told by Congress to develop a supply chain risk assessment framework that should map supply chains to that supports analysis, monitoring, reporting with respect to what they call high-risk subcontractors and risks, risks to those supply chains. Again, it occurs to me, Tom, again, isn't this something that other agencies could benefit from as well? Not everyone buys weapons, but everyone does buy technology, buy you know ICT, information and communications technologies. So again, it's just all these things are happening at once. But what are they? What's how can agencies get to that end result? And I think that's that's kind of what's missing here is how how to get there. And we started with the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council. And that's where this is all supposed to originate from. And where are they in all of this? Because that seems like the locus point. The FASC, as is commonly known, has put out some initial strategies. They put out some guidance. They put out some some kind of goals. They put out a proposed rule that became a final rule in the federal acquisition regulations. So there's a lot going on, but they've been fairly quiet over the last, I would say, year or so. And I think this is where this is where they could step in and start maybe unifying all these efforts, bring them together, make sure that the best practices are being shared, make sure that there's just some basic communication happening. Like I said, Tom, hey, CMS, do you know SSA is doing this? Could you share somehow? Could you buy could there be one contract that you both could buy services from instead of each doing your own contract? I think that's what, what's not clear of what's happening. You know, it's good that GSA is doing this RFI for their GSA schedules and GWACs and multiple work contracts. But what they're coming from, don't you think other agencies, whether it's DHS or DOD or whomever, could also benefit from? And I think that's where the FASC should come in from. Again, GSA mentions in their RFI that they are doing this on kind of behalf of the FASC, if you will. They're kind of taking the, the, their authorities, for lack of a better word, that, they, that they've that received from the council to kind of look at their own marketplace. But we don't know how, if that's going further than just GSA contracts or going to other contracts as well. And, and I, I, guess, I guess my whole point, Tom, is just where is the FASC? What are they doing? It'd be great to hear from them. It'd be great to get an update. I know Krista Russia, the federal CISO, has talked about the importance of the Federal Acquisitions Supply Chain Council. But we're not seeing a lot from them recently, and I think this is an opportunity for them to step in and, and, again, unify, bring everybody under that one umbrella. Just one thought, a final thought here. Could it be that the FASC doesn't want to get out in front of the still unconfirmed director of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy? Because that is a nominee, but hasn't been confirmed right. yet. 
I think that what's been happening with FASC, they've been coordinating with the federal CIO's office, with the OFPP, and I think that the, the nominee, uh, should he get confirmed, which we expect him to hopefully sometime in the near future, uh, now that the Congress has gotten through the, the, the dreaded CR over CR efforts, you think that, that they've already all, kind of already in lockstep. You think that the, the nominee is probably in OFPP in some way as a senior advisor or doing something where they're at least – understanding what's happening so they don't come in blank and, and without any any feedback. So I think it's just unclear whether the, the EO from the cybersecurity and all the zero trust efforts have really taken over the supply chain piece or what is happening. Again, it goes back to it's, it's unclear about where FASC is, is heading. We know they're there. We know it's important to Krista Russia, but what, what role are they playing today? Well, hopefully they'll all see your article and slap their foreheads and say, we got to get together. At the very least, they could at least go make some calls and bring some people together. I agree. All right. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook now online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy while although we were the little guy. Uh, And then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, As part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader, that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision? What are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit? And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. SMS text, 1118 AM. Hey girl, emergency. You wouldn't believe what just happened. Are you at your desk? I ripped my skirt and like half my tush is hanging out. Third floor bathroom, please help, LOL. When you send messages on SMS, someone else could be reading them. With end-to-end encryption, WhatsApp ensures that your personal messages are your personal messages. WhatsApp, always message privately. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.